want you to picture the moment. Use your imagination. Picture the moment. You pick up the Bible and you're ready to spend some time with God. One of those moments. Maybe you're going through a few things at the moment. Maybe your life is an absolute joy. Maybe this is just part of the rhythms of your life. But you know that a connection with God is important, and you've heard that one of the ways to do that, possibly the best way to do that, is to read the Bible. So you pick up the Bible, or you start paging through your device, wherever your Bible is found. And you remember that we're going through the book of Acts here at church, and so you look for the book of Acts, and somehow you end up in Acts chapter 6, which is the passage for today. Acts chapter 6. And you look at it quickly and say, gee, only, only 15 verses. So it'll be a quick read. That's nice. That's always a good thing. 15 verses. You settle down. I'm normally on my bed. A cup of coffee would be ideal. And uh, now I read the passage of Scripture for today. This is what Acts chapter 6 says. But the believers rapidly multiplied. There were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the distribution of food. And so the twelve called a meeting of all the believers, and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the Word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility, and then the apostles can spend our time in prayer and the teaching of God's Word. Everyone liked this idea. There's a lot of miracles that happen in the books of Acts. That's one of the major ones. Everyone said, yeah. Doesn't happen often. Anyway, they chose the following. A guy named Stephen, man, full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon. I bet you didn't know he was in the Bible. Parmenas, sounds a little bit like a cheese, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. And these seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. And so God's message continued to be spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests, in fact, were converted to. And Stephen, man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue, or free slaves as, slaves, as it was called, started to debate with them. And they were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, the province of Asia. But none of them could stand up against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. I love the fact that it was his wisdom and the spirit in him that won the debate, not his intellect or his ability to actually argue. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders and the teachers of the religious law. And so they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. And the lying witnesses, imagine being called that. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple, against the law of Moses. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And at this point, 
everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. So, so what are you going to do with a passage like this? That was your reading for the morning. I mean, you've got bills to pay. You've got to drop the kids off in a few moments. You've got to face up to a colleague or a family member that's upset to you. And this is the passage of Scripture that was landed in your life at this point in time. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to give it some space to take hold of your life? Or are you going to just rush on into the day? You know, some of us might latch on to that last line, kind of take the easy path where it says Stephen's face shone as bright as an angel, and we decide, yep, that's my goal for today. We're going to smile a lot. Despite what circumstances we face, I'm going to smile a lot, and maybe someone will also think I'm angelic. You know, so I'll spread a little rub around by, by, my, by my big smile. And I have to be honest, it's been a while since anyone has accused me of looking angelic, so maybe it's just that I'm not smiling enough. Look, the bottom line is that God might, that, that, that might be the bottom line that God wants to lead you to. Um, but know, know that when you encounter a passage like this or any passage of Scripture, there's so much more happening there than simply to put a, a word, to put a smile on our dial. Let me say right at the start, if you want to rush this kind of reading of Scripture, then I can almost guarantee that you'll come out with a shallow, kind of an insipid sense of what the passage is saying. As I've said before, fast food has its place. It's both convenient and often quite tasty. I personally am inclined towards Kentucky fried chicken, the crispy kind. I love that. I know I shouldn't love it. It's it oily, and, but that crispy kind, some people don't eat the, you know, the, the skin. I like it. All right. And um, Steers chips are also really good. I think they're probably the best chips on the market. McDonald's burgers. There's something plastic about them. But again, I like them. It's just the reality. Um, and Rockamomas, that combination of chips and burgers, you know. Jeez. I also love that it's a combination made in heaven, I think. So as you might have gathered, fast food has its place, at least in my life. And maybe I've dropped a couple of notches in your estimation of me. But fact is, though, folk, a diet of fast food will in the end kill you. It is unhealthy. Although it has its place, it was never, ever, ever, ever meant to be the main source of nutritional intake for any of us. Same with Scripture. We cannot treat it like fast food. It's not meant to be either convenient or always tasty. That's what we look for when we go to McDonald's, not when we want to discern the heart of the living God. More often, and not always, this isn't a rule I'm trying to impose on you. More often, more often, we need to be prepared to sit down to a good meal when we approach the Bible. Linger with the Scripture if we're going to get what we, what we can out of the Scripture. 
kind of experience the tastes of that scripture and the smells and the textures and the different colors of the food. Allow the passage to grow on us. Do we give it enough space in our lives to grow in us? You know, the number of themes in the passage to dawn on us and the smaller details of the passage to start to intrigue us. And none of this will be achieved if we simply rush in and out of a passage of Scripture in three minutes flat, job done for the day. So at some point in our lives, we need to count the cost. Either run the risk of settling with a malnourished soul based on a very entry-level handling of God's Word, or commit yourself to find a way to dig deeper and to mine the gems of wisdom and to discover the heart and mind and love of God as we settle down to a meal that refuses to be rushed. So we look at Acts 6 again. Remember, this is our passage for today. We decide to give it a bit of a chance. Maybe the initial response to that passage was like, oh, what was there for my real life? I mean, honestly. But we're going to give it a chance. First step, we recognize that there's always a backstory to a passage of Scripture. There's always a context that fills a passage with meaning. It would be a great thing to get into a habit as we approach Scripture of refusing to read a passage without something of an understanding of why the passage was written. Ask before you read something. Ask for the backstory. I don't know. I've probably used this story in this church before. Um, Maybe it's even an urban legend, but I don't know if you've ever heard the story of the guy on the train that was letting his two kids run amok, you know, in this train, in this intimate little environment, bumping into other passages, making an absolute massive, absolutely massive noise in that confines. It was getting super awkward. And then one dear old lady decided, you know, enough is enough, genoeg is genoeg. And she gets up from her seat and in a very stern tone says to this man, don't you care that you're ruining the experience of everyone on the train? You don't even seem to care that your children are behaving abysmally. Please, can you do something about them? She decided to say it directly, firmly, but he needed to hear it. And and he looked up with a, a bit of a tired look on his face, stressed look on his face and said, my sincere apologies, we've just come from the hospital where their mom passed away last night, and I was just letting them handle the stress in a way that any child might. See, folk, at times, context is everything. Unless you know the backstory, you'll never know the true story. And so remember the context of this passage, Acts chapter 6, is set back in Acts chapter 1. That mega passage we started off with a couple of weeks ago, the instruction that Jesus left with his disciples, indicating that they were called to be witnesses from that point to the ends of the earth. That was the mega statement. That's the context of this passage. Everything in the book of Acts, everything in the book of Acts, it's an explanation, it's an adventure, it's an echo, it's a roadmap of that prophecy, that instruction becoming a reality. And so we read this passage best when we read it as an extension of that passage. That's the backstory. Our call to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. All right, so let's start reading Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In those days the number of disciples were multiplying. 
because we are following the story very closely, rather than just rushing it, some very careful readers will notice something new about those words, a new element that's been introduced. Up until now, the church has been growing. That's what we've read. It's stated over and over again, 241, 3,000 were added to their number that day. 247, the Lord added to their number daily. 514, men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. But we've come to a point now where it's almost as if that language of simply addition no longer captures the kind of growth that the author is witnessing. And so he introduces this idea of multiplication instead. It's no longer just adding numbers, it's multiplying numbers. Chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, the numbers of disciples were multiplying. Acts 29 moment. Remember Deb said that a couple of weeks ago. It's just a great moment. Acts 29. There's only 28 chapters in Acts. Acts 29 is the story that we're writing in this modern church, or ours and other churches. Acts 29 moment. Man, I'd love that to happen here again. Where our numbers multiply. You know, we're hordes of our friends and family members as we invite them to be part of this journey as a church where hordes of colleagues and even strangers start engaging with Jesus again through this church do we hunger for that you know do we hunger for this multiplication where the limitations of this church building are just so cute it's beyond our capacity to handle the people that want to engage with Jesus through this church do we long for that enough to invite people to engage people and to get conversations with people about Christ i hope it's not a far-fetched dream that we will experience multiplication again in our lifetime i hope it's something that we hunger for and long for. Anyway, but with growth brings challenges. Verse 1, the Hellenistic Jews, basically Greek-speaking Jews, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked. Other, other translations says they were discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Okay, So one of the epic practices of the early church was the support of widows. Apparently what happened back in that day was that a lot of Jews immigrated from outside of Jerusalem into Jerusalem to the holy city because they wanted to die in the holy city. So a lot of the old fogies would come to Jerusalem to die there, to die in the holy city. And the mess is obvious. When there's this massive influx of old fogies, there's not enough young fogies to look after them. Especially the widows, they found themselves in deep, desperate difficulties. And that issue overflowed into the church. You know, kind of like, yeah, it spilled over into the church. But it seems that the poor were always on the radar of the early church. It happened earlier in the story, remember Acts 2.45? But yeah, we see it again. Chapter 29 moment. I can honestly say that this is something our church shares with the early church. A longing to serve the poor. We can always improve in that. But there's genuinely a desire for that. Based on the heart of God and the example of the early church, we as a church must never forget a world out there that is much more needy than many of us here today. 
there's always a call on us as believers and followers of Christ to love our neighbor as we love ourselves and to take their difficulties and make them our own because it's an act of love. So anyway, in the midst of all this caring that has happened, we run into the downside of a growing church, and that is the fact that some of the people were overlooked. Maybe it was that the apostles were trying to put out too many fires, they were juggling too many balls, but somewhere along the line, they started to overlook a whole group of people. At least that's how it felt to them. These, these uh, Hellenistic Jews, these Greek-speaking Jews. I don't know if it was really discrimination. The Greek word isn't all that clear. But the fact that the growth was just happening so rapidly, it was multiplying, remember, suggests that people were starting to slip between the cracks of the care system. The church was growing too quickly. It was juggling too many balls. And to keep their arms around the whole group was tough. Folk, it's a natural and normal thing to happen that people slip through the care system. It's, it's not good. It's not acceptable. But it's a reality. It happens. Some people, even in this early, awesome, God-filled church, some people were overlooked. And so we arrive at the very first horrible moment in church history where people began to murmur. One group starts to grumble against another group. Acts chapter 6 verse 1, there were rumblings of discontent. Paul and Luke both use the same word to describe what these people were doing. They were, he says, they were gogosmos. Gogosmos. That's the Greek word. Literally means to say something in a low tone. As soon as you find yourself having to drop your tone in terms of this or that issue, you must just be careful. Gogosmos. Okay, it's an onomatopoeic word. It sounds like what it means. If all of us, just right now, and I'm not asking you, it's a bit cheesy, but if all of us could like start suddenly just say gogosmos, gogosmos, under our breath like that, that's what it sounds like. A bunch of mumbling, a bunch of grumbling. Acts 29 moment. Thank you to those in our congregation that are committed to more than just grumbling about difficulties that our church faces. There have been some decisive moments in our church where grumbling has come to an end because somebody has handled it better than that. I'm ever so grateful. I cannot say enough how much I appreciate people that are intent on breaking the cycle of murmuring and choose instead to handle the challenges in the right way. That's how it happened in the early church. Somewhere along the line, someone takes the bold step to tell the leaders about the problem. They break the cycle of simple gossip. They get into action. And now the leaders are able to do something about it. This is what they do. Okay, Grumbling stops. Or not, the grumbling has been voiced. This is what the leaders decide to do. Verse 2. So the 12 called a meeting of the believers. Okay, there's a problem brewing. It's affecting the big body of the church. What do the apostles do? They call a meeting. Here's two things that I want you to note about that verse. Firstly, that verse we've just encountered where they call a meeting is one of the main reasons behind the fact that our church has general meetings. We call them 133 meetings. That's a whole different story why we call it that. If you don't know, feel free to ask me. Because that's how they did it in the early church. They called meetings. 
The apostles called the believers in to find a solution to the problem that the church was facing. 133 meetings, we call them 133 meetings, is our sincere attempt to replicate that moment. Secondly, it's the reason that we as a Baptist church believe in what we, or we practice what we call congregational church government, governance. And don't get thrown by those hectic words. But basically it's just saying, we're not governed by a pope who sits in the Vatican somewhere. We are not even governed by a mega group of elders that are super powerful and untouchable. Or even a very impressive pastor, as impressive as John Benny is. We are governed by the group of believers that call this church our home, our spiritual home. That's where the governance lies. Our 133 meetings are not meant to be weak and inconsequential and just like a random choice that fits into the, you know, the fringe of our lives. No, they're meant to be like this meeting that the early church just experienced, grappling with a way forward for the, the church, the spiritual home that we call our own. That's what a 133 meeting is. Acts 29 moment. Next week, not this coming Wednesday, following week is our next, next 133 meeting where we're sharing the vision that the leadership have for the future of this church. And we're inviting the believers to join us, to engage with us, to grapple with us, to be in conversation with us, etc. That is how church is meant to function. Listen to how their meeting went down. Okay, so the, one, the 133 meeting back in the New Testament days happens. This is how it went down. It said, they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the Word of God. Okay, they're recognizing they've got a role to play. It's this role, not that role. Not running a food program. And so we brothers select seven, and so sorry, brothers select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Spirit and wisdom and will give them this responsibility. Then we as apostles can spend our time in prayer and the teaching of God's Word. Bottom line that meeting that they call decides that they should organize themselves better. There's nothing massively spiritual about that feeling, is it? Up your game in terms of organization. It's recognized that the apostles are not meant to do everything, that they have a particular calling to preaching and prayer. People in their congregation were spiritually gifted and able to step up to the mark of this need of the poor widows. Not only were they gifted, but they were also called to do so. For these people to step into that zone or that zone was probably going to be inappropriate. And so seven men are selected to solve this problem. Just, just to quickly say it was men because that's how a patriarchal society worked. Not because by any stretch of the imagination are men better at this kind of job than women. Definitely not. Interesting though, again, going back, isn't it that, that, that reorganizing an existing structure, kind of revising the organogram must be seen, mustn't be seen in any way, shape or form to be a less spiritual exercise than say prayer or evangelism. You know, sometimes organizing a church is seen as if it's some kind of godless activity, a human attempt at making the church grow. And people are heard asking, why do you bring so much structure to the church? Earlier must simply be left up to the Spirit to do his own thing or her own thing. Absolutely, that's true. But sometimes the Spirit chooses to structure and organize and delegate as the appropriate godly way forward. 
So these seven men are elected. We read their names earlier, so I won't read them again up on on the board. But one more little verse before we jump into this character named Stephen. One more little verse. Verse 7 says, so God's message continued to spread. Okay, that's an echo of Acts chapter 1. The witness continuing to the ends of the earth. That's the echo. That's the context being reaffirmed. So God's mission continued to spread. That's the conclusion. Literally, that's the bottom line of that episode that was brewing between the two sets of widows. It's the culmination of that story. That's the wrap-up. Whatever happened in the story there, whoever was involved, nothing changed the fact that God's message continued to spread. That the Acts 1 reality instruction prophecy continued to be realized. Division threatened. Grumbling happened. But it was navigated in such a way that the message of God's word continued to spread. Acts 29 moment. Please, Heavenly Father, protect us as a church from becoming a hindrance to your word instead of an instrument that spreads your word. We know that we're capable of becoming a hindrance. May we be humble enough to know what to do when division threatens. May we be wise enough to see things through your eyes as they truly are. May we be decisive enough to make decisions that spreads your word into every season of our church's future. So lastly, we come to this guy named Stephen in this passage. And I must be honest, because of the next few verses and the rest of this chapter and what follows into the next chapter, I actually suspect that everything to this point actually has been a long introduction about this guy, Stephen. Like, like it, it kind of was that story about the widows. I think actually the, the author of Acts was wanting to tell you about Stephen, this favorite guy of his. So he tells you about the widows, but he kind of launches into Stephen straight afterwards. Just quickly, did you know that you have 47 more shopping days before Christmas? That's a bit of a random fact to throw in the middle of a sermon. But the reason I'm telling you this is that you have 48 more days to St. Stephen's Day, which is Boxing Day. It's the day that we celebrate generosity. So when you get to Boxing Day for this year, just remember that rip of a sermon that you heard about Stephen a couple of months before. Right. Now, I don't have time to do a real exegesis of this guy's character, Stephen's character. But I must admit, since I've been doing this study, you know there's that little exercise. If you could meet one person from all the pages of Scripture, other than Jesus, because everyone goes by default to Jesus, if you could meet one person from all of Scripture, have a cup of coffee for an hour with him, who would you meet? Since I've been doing this passage of Scripture, studying here, I must confess, I think I'll choose Stephen. This guy that was kind of on the fringe of my understanding of biblical stuff, but just getting a sense of who he is, choices that he made in two chapters of Scripture, the presence that he fills, yeah. I would love to meet this precious man. Listen to these sound bites as they try to capture and describe who Stephen is. Verse 5, Stephen, 
a man full of faith, the Holy Spirit. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs amongst the people. Verse 10. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. Verse 15. Everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. So verses 5 to 15, the last part of, of this chapter, the author, author takes these 10 verses to paint a picture of an incredible saint. And the truth is, church is about people, isn't it? Yes, there are structures and strategies and elders and deacons and meetings and needs that must be met, but at the end of the day, a massive part of the success or failure of the church boils down to the kind of people that sit in the pews and the chairs every day. Stephen, up until this point, was just a bloke like you are, sitting in the church service, listening to the sermons. But that is the treasure of any church. It's it's the Stevens in the church. It's the Allens in the church, the Vidushas in the church. It's in their stories. It's the stories of these people's lives and character that emerge from, from the experience that tells the redemption story that God is telling in this world. Your story tells God's story of redemption. Your story becomes the witness that this world desperately needs to see and hear. And so in a sense, we've done a full circle. We sat down to meet with God through the reading of the Bible, and we encountered a passage of Scripture that possibly was a little awkward initially, kind of dry, you know, dry bread. Um, possibly arrived at that moment with Scripture, with a bit of an agenda, I need God to speak to me about my grumpy family or stressful lifestyle. And it's been a circular route through areas that we didn't really think we'd ever visit. But at this point, we're reminded that the quality of the story that will be written in terms of God's scheme of things is determined by the character of you and me, the author, you and me, nothing else. People will interpret the redemptive story of God through our life story and our characters. Yes, Stephen was challenged by the threat of division in the church. Those two different Jewish widow groups. Okay? Stephen was threatened by, but that's not the story we'll remember. It's the Spirit of God in him and his graciousness that met that challenge. That's the epic story. The story of his character. In those circumstances. Yes, Stephen was accused by lying witnesses, but it's his wisdom that leaves them silenced and people sitting up and taking note of this precious man. It's our character that writes the story of God that this world needs to hear. What are the sound bites that we would love people to use? Our kids 
you know, our colleagues, our, our wife, our spouse, with the soundbites that we'd love people to use, they consider our lives and the nature of our faith. Whatever those soundbites are, know that they will be echoes of how we walk with the Spirit of God and how we talk and serve and grapple with this world that we live in, a world that we call to change. May God's awesome, redemptive story be told powerfully through your character as it is and was through Stephen's character. So that's Acts chapter 6, folk. As I say, maybe initially it was a little bit dry, but please give Scripture the chance to speak to us. Go past that initial moment where you say, yes, that was boring. And allow yourself to discover the immense richness of Scripture that is in every passage of Scripture. Next week, we're going to hear how this beautiful, precious man, Stephen, becomes the first martyr in the church's history. And Debbie's going to preach us, preach us chapter 7 of Acts. It's about 40, 56 verses. So she's asking if you can just free up three hours for the service next week. Now, some of you are like, yeah, bring it on. Others are like, whatever. All right? Here's the thing. The, the reality is it'll help the service immensely. Debbie's job immensely and your soul, it'll help massively if in this coming week you grapple with Acts chapter 7 in your own reading. Okay? Go to Acts chapter 7, 50-something verses. Take your time. You've got a whole week to read it. Try not to rush it. Try to allow that passage of Scripture to, to enjoy it, to climb into it, to be challenged by it, to be moved by that. So that when Deb's preach from, preaches from it next week, you'll sit here drawing from a depth of understanding that fills her sermon and your understanding more than anything. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Lord, we do, each one of us, want to bring to you our character, that bedrock of our lives that determines the story that our lives is telling this world. We bring to you our character and we invite you to leave your imprint on our character. Those zones that we are deeply embarrassed about. Those zones that trip us up way too often. Those zones that are in the dark deep recesses of our lives, but also those zones that we celebrate and enjoy. Lord, just we bring our whole character to you, the length and breadth, the heart, the depth of it, and pray that you would work with us in such a way that the story of our character becomes the redemptive story that you are offering this world, as it did through Stephen. Fill us with the grace that Stephen showed this world with the wisdom that overwhelmed people's arguments, with the power that challenged the structures of this world. Lord, please work in our character, we pray, that we may be able to tell a good story to a world out there that needs it, your story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. Good to have you all with us. Have a great day.